Welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. On today's episode, Rebecca is on the road once again. This time she's in Minneapolis talking with Ginny Herzog, who does amazing work and has some really interesting things to say about entrepreneurship and running an art business. So without further ado, here's Rebecca Kroll. Hello and welcome to The Messy Studio. I'm Rebecca Kroll and today I'm in Minneapolis with the artist Ginny Herzog. She's been an independent self-supporting artist for about 35 years and she's got some interesting stories to tell and a little bit about her art business which she conducts very, very well and professionally and has kept her going for many years. So Ginny, welcome. Thank you, Rebecca. Nice to have you. So um, I'm going to start by asking you just a little bit about your background in education and how you got started with painting. Well, I was um, raised in Minneapolis and um, graduated from high school here and went on to a state college uh, in St. Cloud. And I received a studio art degree. I knew I didn't want to teach um, but I didn't really know what I was going to do with that art degree. And after graduating, um, my second job that I had was decorating um, model homes for a major home builder oh. here in Minneapolis. And um, I uh, worked in a, an unusual company that had its own architecture department, um, with young architects, and I was their first in-house interior designer. So they were providing me with floor plans and elevation drawings of um, upcoming projects, and um, and I was doing the interiors. I married soon after um, acquiring that job, and a couple of years later, um my husband and I ended up relocating to St. Louis for another job opportunity for him. When I got to St. Louis, I did not have my connections any longer for doing the interior design. And we had a second child, um, first and a second child. And so I was at home with the kids and I needed to keep busy and do something so I did watercolors, and I took um, private lessons from someone just to get back into painting, and then I began exhibiting uh, at local shows. Um, about uh, eight years later, uh, we went through a divorce, and um, I knew I needed to work full-time at something to bring in an income to support my the kids and I. And so I decided to continue doing the art. But I went from just doing a few local shows to doing shows all around the country. And so I was doing probably about on the average of 10 shows a year and traveling as far away as Florida from St. Louis. And St. Louis was a good location because it was so centrally located right. in the country. So when you're 
When you're saying shows, you're talking about juried art fairs. Correct. And that's what you continue to do now today, Correct. which is something we're going to yeah. talk about a little bit, because I don't think that I've had anyone else on the podcast so far that has made a living doing these juried art fairs. So we'll get into that in a little bit. So, so when, I think that was a brave decision when you, when you said, okay, I've got to make my own living now. And I'm going to do it with my art. So was that was that a hard thing? It was because back then, uh, this was in the '80s. I had no mentors of any artists that were making a living doing the art. Um, many of the females out there doing the art fairs, they their husband had a full-time job. Right. Or maybe some of those females also had a second job. So this was just um, something else that would bring in an income, an additional income than their other part-time job. So, But I didn't know of anybody full-time supporting themselves and their family doing um, shows. But I, I very soon met many of them oh. from around the country. At that time, I was doing more art fairs than anyone, any artist in St. Louis. Um, and uh, it started, it was difficult at first, but I eventually was able to make it work. And there were no um, resources like there are today, for any artist to want to enter into that type of marketing for their work. Uh-huh. There's so much more with the online now and uh, social media. How did you even find out about the shows around the country then? I knew a another artist from St. Louis who had been an interior designer, and um, her husband had a full-time job. She was doing more shows outside of St. Louis than I was. So I would ask her what she found mm-hmm. to be some of the best markets for her, her two-dimensional work, and then how to get the addresses of those shows oh. when the deadlines were. So she was able to provide me with that info, because again, none of that was available. You, were just, just, you had to snail mail them your application and so on and wait to hear back. And And back then, it was all male applications, and it was all with 35-millimeter slides. The days of slides. Aren't you glad those are gone? (laughs) But what was interesting was, um, oh, and then the rejections would come. You would go to the mailbox, you know, about when the, the letters would come with the acceptances or rejections. And you would feel the envelope. <laughs> and if there were slides in there, you knew it was a rejection. Because if you got accepted, they would keep the slides until the show, and that's when they would return yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> so it was always that, you know, before opening it, it was kind of like the decision was already there oh, yeah, in your yeah, hands. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Um, and what you mentioned um, that your friend did two-dimensional work, as you did painting. So... Um, how how was that? I know a lot of juried art fairs do have a lot of three dimensional work. What was your painting like at the time that was successful at these Good shows? Good question. In the beginning, my watercolors 
were ordinary landscapes. It's just like barns and weeds and things mm. like that. Um, then they became organic abstractions. I think my inspiration was like maybe looking in a creek bed or something and seeing the rocks and the water swirling right. around the rocks. Um, another series I did was as if you were on mass transit and you were looking out the windows and the countryside or the city was blurring as it went by. Mm-hmm. I did a series that was have, relating to that. Um, then they began, became geometric abstractions. And that was a, a important time for me. And, uh, because, um, one day someone came into my booth at a show and looked at my work and said, you must love Richard Diebenkorn. And I went, who? Uh-huh. And she said, you don't know Richard Diebenkorn? I said, no, I've never heard that name. And she was from California. Uh-huh. So that's where Diebenkorn was from. She said, I'm bringing a museum c- catalog the next day and to the show, and I want you to take a look at his work. And when I when she brought the catalog to me and opened it up, I went, Oh my gosh, and I loved it. And from that day, my geometric compositions, a lot of people think they have the bones of a Diebenkorn piece, mm-hmm. but they've gotten much more detailed yeah. beyond that. And you, you do have a unique style, which we're going to talk about. And, and I will put some of photos of your work on our Facebook page because you really need to see this work that, that Jitty does. It is, I think, You've commented to me that often people say, I've never seen anything like this. And I think that's exactly what I said the first time I saw it. Because it has elements of great detail, as well as kind of color field areas. And those areas of great detail, why don't you tell us about what those are? Well, when I was doing, starting to do the geometric compositions um, in 1980. Um, we took, my husband and I and the kids took a trip to Chicago and went to the Museum of Science and Industry. And going through the museum, I noticed there was this one room that had a special exhibit on the Bauhaus movement of architecture. And I poked my head inside, and I went, oh my gosh, I need to spend some time here. And I knew it was not going to be of interest to my family. So I said, take the kid to see the toy exhibit. Right. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to spend about a half hour in this room and absorbing what I, I see in here. And when I left and came home from that trip, um, it was that following year that I went through a divorce and decided to make my living with the art. And that's when I started incorporating architectural elements into my work. So at that time, I was kind of reinventing myself on several levels, and um, and I was experimenting with the architectural imagery. Um, I was using the inspiration from that first um job 
of working with floor plans oh, and right. elevation drawing. Right. So that was in the back of my mind. And then I started looking at architectural magazines and things and cutting out architectural elements from the photos and using them as collage. Um, and that was it way before digital cameras. So that I did that for several years for the collage. But with the digital cameras coming out, about the same time that I got my first computer, which was in the early 90s, then I started doing my own photography and teaching myself Photoshop. So what I do is I take my own photos, I Photoshop them, make the photos what I want them to be, I print them out archivally, I do laser color copies of them, and then I'm taking these architectural components and constructing architectural forms that don't really exist. Mm. And I pay no attention to the orientation of the photos, so they're upside down and sideways, and so these forms really play with your mind. Uh-huh. in terms of the perspective and what these elements might be. You know that they're architectural, but you're not quite right. sure. Right, yeah. There, It's really intriguing, and it's also an intriguing combination of the collaged photo with, because it's not just a collage, you're painting as well, uh, kind of color fields around these images that you photographed, and... So there's an interplay between the precision, really, of the photo, of whatever it is, and then this more soft uh, painterly stuff that's going on. And was that always part of it? or No, and in the beginning it was watercolor, because I was not working with the cold wax yet. So um, I worked in watercolors for thirty years. But you, but you did have those color fields in relation, and that that kind of duality of this. Uh, precision and detail against a more soft Correct. area, yeah, Correct. which is very interesting. And yeah. so that whole, I've gone through probably eight different architectural series in my career, um, and there are um, there was even a series I did in which the work was dimensional; it was in relief. Oh. Um, for about almost 10 years. Um, and at that time I was painting on Strathmore cold press illustration board. So I was cutting up this 20 ply board mm-hmm. and painting on pieces and collaging on them and building them oh, yeah. on the surface of the Strathmore board. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting, sometimes in, in art speak, we talk about form and content. So your idea of architecture, uh, the, the, the form of these built-up surfaces was related to this idea, which is really interesting. Almost like little it's architectural models. Yeah, little right. buildings yeah. Of, yeah. of board. And, yeah. um, and, and then eventually you started using cold wax, medium, and oil. Um, it, well, another one other important thing before the cold wax was... In uh, 1994, I believe, Ampersand began making the clayboard panels. Uh-huh. 
and I was in watercolor then, and I remembered the ad saying you could paint in watercolor on the ampersand panels and not have it under glass. And I was doing big watercolors, and my clients were saying, you know, we love your work, and it's very interesting, but we have a lot of windows, and there's a lot of reflection. And when I found out there was a panel I could paint on in the watercolor and not have it under glass... That just opened yeah. up my world. I think it's it's interesting how a product, and, and for me it was cold wax medium back in the day when I first started using it, a product can really change your work in, in such a good way. And it is, uh, I don't know, it's kind of one of the really exciting aspects of trying new things, trying new products. Correct. And, and just for our listeners, Ampersand is a company that makes all kinds of of panels for painting with different media. So some for watercolor, some for oil, uh, encaustic. Pastel. So, um, and the, the panels come all prepared, so you don't have to put the priming on. Right. Yeah. And I was one of the first customers when they started the, making the product. Yeah. And I loved it, so I introduced many artists to the ampersand panel for several years because I would have been just heartbroken if they didn't continue right, right. You, you, want, you had a vested interest in this company doing did. well. Yeah. So interesting enough, I was only working on the flat panels because they, that's all they had back then. And, um, and, and the aquaboard, which they first called textured clayboard and then aquaboard. Um, and then, uh, about 1991, they started doing the cradled clayboard panels. And that's when I quit doing my dimensional painting because Uh. it was taking so much time to cut those up for those smaller pieces. I wanted to paint on the small cradled panels, and that would expose the levels, and I couldn't do that anymore because the... dimensional pieces needed to be under glass. Oh, I see. So, yeah. so I quit doing the dimensional series, and then I was just doing, um, working on the cradled boards mm-hmm. for, um, for my small works. Mm-hmm. The other thing, the cradled boards worked well for me with marketing my work at the art fairs because my display panels in my booth are of this carpeting-type material called pro panels. And it works really well to put Velcro oh. on the back of the small cradle pieces, and I can just stick them onto those carpet panels without having to have hangers. Also, because of my work being very geometric and abstract, my small pieces are all designed to be hung any direction. So when I'm setting up my booth, my booth never looks the same, never is hung the same way because the pieces are turned a different direction. Mm. And so the cradle panels work well for that as well. Yeah, yeah. So so the ampersand products were a step. The um, cold wax medium, I know, was a step. And that was early, what, 2012, 2013, something. I know you took a course with me, a class with me. And um, so is that pretty much what you use now as cold wax medium? Uh, exclusively. Exclusively. Now. Okay. Um, when I made the decision, well, when I saw your work, when I was exposed to it, the reason why 
I wanted to switch from watercolor to cold wax was I was getting bored with the watercolors. I've been doing them for so long. I wanted to work with a medium that had more depth and more um, ways to experiment with it. Mm. And when I took my first workshop from you at your studio, I knew within like two hours this was it. Uh. <laughs> I was like, yes, I was like a duck to water. I love this <laughs> medium. And, and although I loved a lot of what you did, I knew what I wanted to do was to take all of those lessons and techniques and continue my architectural journey, but being able to explore different ways of working with the subject matter in executing my vision of, of yeah. the architecture. And I, I love that, you know, uh, when I teach workshops, I love it when people take take the information, take the techniques, and bring it to their own vision. And um, by the way, uh, Ginny's work is featured in in our book, Cold Wax Medium Techniques, Concepts, and Conversations. Um, and one of the things that that Jerry and I enjoyed about the book was finding people who used cold wax medium in, in such different ways. And you're a great example of thank you taking. Yeah. You know, you, you had a concept, you had an idea, and you brought a new substance, a new media to it, and it's, it's gotten, it does have more, probably more depth, and, and the colors are more, I don't know, cold wax makes that beautiful transparency and luminosity when you build up the layers. And so I, I love that you've, you've had an idea for a long time. You've been working with this architectural idea, but you continue, to innovate along, you know, within the idea that you enjoy and is important to you and you continue to look for new ways to work with it. And I think that's uh, an excellent, it's, well, it's a mark of a very mature professional attitude. Yeah. And I think, um, let's talk a little bit about the art fairs and how that works. And I know when we were talking last night, you said it was, you realized it was important to have a unique product at the art fairs, which yours clearly is, and that you also approach art fairs not only just selling your work there, but you're also finding uh, commissions that way. So tell us a little bit about how that works. Well, one of the most important things about the subject matter that I've chosen is the fact that my work can be... um uh, site-specific, and that means um, because I do architectural paintings, I often get commissions from people to do their home or the corporate building, or maybe it's a project, uh, an apartment building or condo building project, um, where I go to the project and I photograph it I might take maybe 200, 300 shots, digital shots, different times of the day and night, bring it back to the studio, Photoshop all the photos, and then show the client what I have, and they, we select 
some of the most important shots that I have to be included in the piece. And um, to my knowledge, there is no one else who does what I do. Right. Um, so I'm bringing an abstract image of that project to them for that project. Yeah, and so it's, it's... goes in reception areas and conference rooms and lobbies, yeah. And it, it really is a nice... You, you occupy that territory between pure, pure abstraction where, you know, uh, you're making this personal for this company or this Correct. individual home or whatever it is so that they they see that intersection of their building with your approach to it and it, obviously it's very it's working for you you do it, very it well does. with this the other thing i do is architectural firms may have a partner that is retiring and they want to give them a special retirement gift ah. and they contact me and say will you do one that incorporates the photos of several of the projects that our partner worked on during their tenure at our firm. And so they're giving a very personal gift for them for their lifetime oh, uh, with that firm. That's wonderful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I've done that as well. And and you make some of these contacts at the fairs? Almost all of my contacts for all of the commission work I do comes from the shows. So when I do these art fairs, for me, it's not about how much money in sales that I wrote up at the show in my booth that weekend. For me, it's about planting seeds that sometimes bear fruit. It could be a month or two later. It could be five years later. You know, people, I, I have postcards with an image of my work, a, a large postcard, and People don't throw those away. They keep them. Mm-hmm. And when they're ready, they contact me. Mm. So I get an email saying, we're ready now to have you do a piece or, or to buy a piece. And I sell a lot of my work from my website. People yeah. may not buy at the show, but when they're ready, mm-hmm. they'll look at the website. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because at least my and my idea of what these fairs were about was the point of sale. You know, you're going to cash and carry, take it away. And I I think it's an interesting um, way to go because you're, you, you are interacting directly with the people that are interested. And some, some artists are not so happy about that. They don't want to have to deal with that one-on-one, face-to-face stuff. But if you're good with it, this is a, a really viable way to work. And I know that at one time you have worked with galleries, but you really, now you really don't. Is right that now I'm self-representing. Um, I'm not shy to say that I'm 72 years old now. And I, for the most part, totally do the shows alone, although I have hired help or asked for help for setup and takedown. Um, but I know that I probably don't have that many more years left on the road. I mean, I'm I'm driving sometimes three days to get to a show. How many miles do you put on your car? About twenty thousand a year. Yeah, I, I I have a little story of my own. At at one time, I had 
a series of workshops I was teaching and other things, and I had to take a really long road trip by myself with paintings in the car, and I was very daunted by this idea, and I thought, Ginny does it, I can do it. <laughs> so you were my my role model for hitting the road with a with a car full of art, <laughs> and you do you you have a beautifully set up van with all your stuff in the back. It's all, and I have a minivan to do this. Yeah. Most of the artists that do these shows have. Big vans and S, um, you know, almost everybody is in a full size van. Yeah. I'm one of the few that still does it in a minivan, but I can get the way I load my van, I can get about 50 pieces ready to hang in my van. Yeah. And some of these are big too. They're not yeah. little tiny ones all yeah. the time. So they yeah. go, they range in size from eight by eight cradled. And up to um, 40 by 50s. I have two 40 by 50s in my van all the time. And by the way, the smaller pieces, the cradled ones, I have ordered in nesting sizes. So I bag them individually in plastic bags, and then I nest them inside of ah. each other. So in a space where one painting might go, I may have three. You have some good systems going on. I do. <laughs> and I think we have a photo of your van in the book, right? You with, do. With, yeah. 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 So it's it's quite a packing amazement to look at that. Um, and I think we're, we're kind of getting near wrapping up, but I know one of the things that uh, we thought we might talk about was how you price your work. You have not only the paintings that you sell directly at the art fairs, you also have commission work. And I think a lot of people are interested in maybe they're starting out or maybe they're they're just confused about pricing and you offered to share some of that. So I'll give you some chance to do that. Well, I know in the very beginning when I began, uh a full size watercolor I was sold for framed for two hundred dollars and I was absolutely thrilled. Well today my least expensive piece would be an eight by eight and it is a hundred and fifty. So, um, it, over the 35 years, I have grown in my, uh, self-confidence about, um, the experience I've had and the uniqueness of the work and the value in that that my clients have when they purchase my work. I don't, I mean, because the work is unique, somebody can't look at it and say, well, I'm going to go buy this style from somebody a block away because they're 10% cheaper, 20%, yeah. whatever. And um, if they truly love my work and they want an original piece by me, that's it. I mean, the price is what it is. Um, but it's gotten to that point because when I was doing the shows over the years, my rule of thumb was, if I sold out my inventory that year, by the end of the year, I raised my prices another 10%. Uh-huh. And that went on for several years until the recession. And at the point of the recession, because it was so damaging for sales at that time, particularly among my strong architect collectors, because they were hurt. And, and for people... We have many listeners in other countries, and so the recession you're referring to in the U.S. was in 2008. Correct. And so after 2008, I've held my prices because I have noticed that the middle class 
that were some of my strongest buyers are very few of them are collecting like they were. Right. And if I raise them anymore, I think I would cut out sales significantly. And the number of things you're selling is, is good. So yeah. it's, yeah. Correct. And, you and, know, the, and the commission work, all the site specific commission work where I have to do the photography as well yes. is 50% higher than the base prices of the painting. Oh, I see. And, yeah. Yeah. And do do they do you require a down payment on that? Yes, all of the commissions I take a fifty percent down, and the balance when they uh, are finished just before I ship. And and I don't suppose this has ever happened, but if they didn't like the finished work, what would your response be? Well, now with the cold wax, I can keep reworking them, and I never ship until they've seen the fi- the photo of the final piece, mm-hmm. and so I'm also always able to make adjustments during the the duration of the um, commission. And I've had a couple of difficult commissions in which they were maybe a little bit picky, but strangely enough, those ended up being some of my strongest pieces. So I've learned to work with my clients. Um, I've never had a client reject the work because they didn't like it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. and, you know, you do have a lot of systems. So was there, is there now or was there a pricing system uh, other than the 10% uh, raising that you talked I mean, how did you set them originally? Was it by size? Yes. And yeah. I do put pretty much price by the square inch. For right. me, I do the square inch and um, then the total number of square inches and times three and come up with the, the price. Is there a sliding Scale yeah, and scale yeah. according to size. That's correct. what I, I do as well. So the smaller ones are per square inch, but a higher dollar amount. And then right. the bigger ones are a little less. So, right, correct. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a good story because it shows that you started out willing to accept a lower price. But, you know, when you enter the art market, you don't want to undercut yourself either. And And I often see people whose work really is worth more starting out at prices that that say hey I'm just starting out uh, I'm not that serious or something there's a, there's a certain prestige in having a, a price that's not too high but a price that says my work is valuable and so I think finding that starting point is a challenge when you're getting going in the and beginning and also when you're not doing galleries and being that I'm totally self represented mm-hmm. it's not like I'm getting 50% that's of the true. prices for the work. Mm-hmm. And so that's something, if you're going to do both, if you're going to have gallery representation and you're going to be self-representing, I think I would recommend artists have a series that they don't take on the road with them or maybe isn't on their website and have that particular series for the galleries and have it priced at a price that they can live with for the amount of work that they have in that piece, but you but you do need to keep your prices consistent. Correct, absolutely. Yeah. But I'm saying by having a different series, it's almost like in the retail marketplace. If you try to to um, compare prices between Walmart and uh, Macy's, um, they will have different model numbers, so you can't oh, compare the same item. If you have two different series, uh-huh. and they're very and, different, and have a different series in the galleries, then that's a way to set you set your price. 
There's no way that it's going to be found on your website or in your booth for a um, treatment project. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. If yeah, that's a creative way to look at it. Yeah. If you're going to do uh, galleries. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, it, um, is there anything else that you want to share with us before we wrap up? Um, I think the one thing is that I know, like I said, I'll probably not be doing the art fairs for a lot longer. So I'm always looking ahead to what my future might be with marketing my work. And I think I've been planting seeds. I think I will be doing a, um, a lot more online sales. Um, probably still doing some traveling, but not necessarily shows or getting assistance for the show. Right, yeah. right. And you will continue the commission work. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's yeah. that's really got to yeah. be a, a yeah. huge part of what you do. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, thanks very much. This has all been really interesting. I well, think. it's been fun being Good. with you, Rebecca. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. You can find The Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. Make sure to check out www.coldwaxbook.com and www.rebeccacroll.com and sign up for the email list to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a review. Remember to share the show with friends and family and anyone who you think will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. In the meantime, embrace your own creative space, messy or otherwise.